The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. We have good empirical evidence for what constitutes a good inflation hedge. And uh, basically, it boils down to two asset classes. One is exposure to commodity prices through commodity uh, futures. And the other one is farmland. Welcome to the Mentory TV podcast and Thrive with Patricia Falco-Beccali. Welcome back to another edition of COVID-19 from Crisis to Creation here on Mentory TV. I'm Patricia Falco-Beccali, your host. I don't know about you, but I'm getting a little worried about this COVID-19 crisis that seems to be a pandemic that drags on. So why am I worried? Of course, it's a health crisis, so I'm worried from a health point of view, but I'm also worried about our economies because, yes, recession is something starting to creep in, and of course, we do have all those stimulus programs. We've got the central banks pumping in money, we've got the fiscal stimulus, and all of that of course, in order to get this economy back up going. However, let's just think a little bit further. What about inflation? Inflation, why is that an issue for me today? Well, simply because inflation really eats up your pocket wealth. Your paper wealth, the purchasing power of your hard-earned money could just wither away with inflation. So I was just thinking, why not invite a, a great commodity trader, hedge fund manager, Alex Kreiner, to the show. He's also written a book about, you know, uncertain times and commodity trading in uncertain times, uh, weathering uncertainty in commodity trading, generating sustainable profits through trend following is his book. Alex, so good to have you. We're going to also quickly touch on the book. But I think, Alex, the real question is here, how can we investors, normal people on the street really deal with a potential inflationary risk? What are the protection tools, hence the hedging tools? Welcome to the show. Thank you, Patricia. That was a lovely introduction. I'm very privileged to join you and your viewers. And I think that inflation is one of the most important subjects that we can uh, talk about these days because I believe that inevitably it is coming since the COVID crisis. Uh, I think it became even more inevitable because the Federal Reserve has responded to the crisis by uh, QE4, the quantitative easing that is now larger than the previous four quantitative easings combined. Uh, one thing that we know about history of inflation, and uh, my qualification, I'll just add that for eight years of my career, I ran a, a hedge fund uh, that was called. Altana Inflation Trends Fund. So inflation was my target event. It was a tail risk strategy. And uh, over those eight years, I think that if there was an article published with the, uh, with the word inflation in it, I read it. So I went over everything 
this is not to say that I have a final and complete knowledge about the phenomenon because uh, the one unnerving thing about inflation is that generally we're always guessing. Nobody really knows anything because one important ingredient to the whole um, mix is human psychology and confidence in the ex existing monetary uh, arrangement. Okay, and I think we will talk about uh, human psychology and trading and uh, generating trends in general a little later on. But see, let's stay a moment with inflation because I'm looking at a couple of very interesting markets that could indicate one direction the economy could take and another direction the economy could take. Uh, and that is gold and oil, Alex. You know, I look at gold. Gold, for me, for anybody, really has a safe haven standard that if inflation is coming, eating up your paper money's value, then, of course, you have gold. So gold has been going up, had a nice little rally the last two years, and especially also this year, really outperforming, for example, oil. Now, oil tends to go down if there is no inflationary pressure, simply because there is no economic growth. So production side won't have to have any fuel in order to produce. Why this, this, this decoupling? What is the real story? Why is Greenspan, why are you so convinced that we are really going to see an inflation also, if I may add, Alex, considering that after the financial crisis in 2008, inflation was a problem, yes, but not because it was there. Uh, well, the circumstances have changed. You know, the, uh, the monetary authorities, not just the Federal Reserve, but uh, all of the major central banks have responded to the economic crisis the way they usually do, by conjuring more debt, more money, and uh, generally ramping up the printing presses. Uh, we are now in completely unprecedented times, but we have enough historical precedents regarding inflation to know that, um, well, for example, Peter Bernholz uh, analyzed the 29 um, historical episodes of hyperinflation, uh, 28 of which happened in the 20th century. And uh, what he found was that pretty much uh, when the central bank start monetiz starts monetizing a significant uh, proportion of government deficit spending, usually what follows is very high rates of inflation. Uh, we also know that since 1960 onwards, um, more than two-thirds of all market economies have sustained uh, high rates of inflation of uh, at least 25% or more. And uh, the, the danger with this is that uh, investors, people who depend on their savings, on their pension accounts and so forth, uh, take very, very large hits on the purchasing power of their savings, which is half or more. Alex, you know, the inflation question is in, in my head simply because, yes, it is uh, a statistic and you send it through to me and it's wonderful that you say, hey, inflation is a real issue here and it really touches everybody, Joe Bloggs, on the street. Um, but then again, you know, uh, the pickup of the economy might not be so certain. So you're saying the central banks are printing not only for economic recovery, but also they need to get rid of their deficits, which will not be done by economic growth. On top of that, it seems also that these stimulus packages coming through from the uh, fiscal side, from the governments pumping in money, adds to that potential risk. And let me just quickly share, if I may, a screen with you. Um, there you are. 
That is, it's German. <laughs> Some of my, my research is uh, popping up in German because it comes through from Credit Suisse and sometimes from UBS. And it just yes. shows you uh, what we've seen as of uh, monetary or money supply, money being pumped in to the economy. Let me just show you a couple of things. And Alex, if you would be so kind to just um, comment on it. So here, for example, that's the financial crisis uh, of 2008. So money supply went up to a certain extent. Okay. Then we had, we had uh, an, another economic wobble, money supplies goes up, but it doesn't come back down to the original level. And now we are here. We are here. And money supply, I'm going to stop sharing now, money supply always connotates that you will have too much money in the economy to be really keeping prices stable. Do you agree with that? And what can central banks really do in the long term to suck up this money again once the economy is going? There are two types of inflation. One is the let's call it a benign kind of inflation that uh, comes through with economic growth. So, you know, like as a, uh, as the population in a, in a given economy uh, grows more prosperous, uh, they uh, buy uh, more consumer goods, and so the prices of consumer goods go up. Uh, what we're talking about here is not this kind of inflation. We're talking about inflation that comes as a result of deflation. All right. So what deflation does, and this is uh, what we've uh, what we've had in a very very sharp, uh, quick episode recently, is that it puts a very serious constraint on supply. So uh, we had oil prices drop. We'll get to the oil prices later because it's another in, in immensely uh, fascinating area. But we had oil, oil prices decline by seventy percent. We had one day when they turned negative. Actually, there were some uh, transactions that were recorded at negative prices. Uh, this kind of thing uh, um, is a heavy blow for oil producers. Uh, most of the shale producers, no, all of the shale producers in the United States never turned a profit. So uh, at prices at below $40 a barrel, uh, uh, they're just piling up losses. All that production could completely drop off the market. And so suddenly you have a supply crunch. But there's a lot more than that that meets the eye. So once you have a supply crunch, uh, with the time delay, you might have a very sharp increase in uh, prices of, of uh, commodities without there even being any, uh, any uh, significant economic growth, which is called stagflation. And stagflation is usually what you have when you have very high inflation episodes. Yeah, high inflation without real underlying growth. And I'm so happy, Alex, that you uh, mentioned the oil price. And yes, uh, why don't we just talk about that, considering you just mentioned it? Because everybody, back on the 20th of April, just started scratching their heads going, what do you mean? Oil price minus 37 US dollars. How does that happen? What does this mean? Where does it come from? And you were also just saying there are many elements Please explain to me, to the Mentored TV community, what really happened um, and what, what really the underlying message is if something like that happens in the market, in these kind of uh, economic circumstances we find ourselves in now. Well, unfortunately, I cannot tell you what really happened. I can tell you what the narrative was. 
Uh, basically, no, there's so much oil. There's such a there's such a glut of oil. Um, storages were overflowing, and uh, oil producers needed to urgently get rid of all that oil, so they were paying buyers to take it off their hands. Um, to be very honest with you, Patricia, I am very skeptical of such stories. I would like to see these transactions, and I would like to see that money actually changed hands because uh, a lot of times as you know, I, I started my career as an oil trader and an oil market analyst. So I go back uh, almost 25 years uh, closely following the oil markets. And what you find is very often that narrative is uh, often woven out of half truths, uh, untruths, fantasies, hysteria, hype, and so forth. And so what comes through in the media uh, is often events that are real, but they're over-sensationalized. And uh, I would like to know who exactly paid whom to lift oils off their hands, because oil is an asset. You know, like even if you had, uh, let's, let's say coffee or gold, would you pay somebody to, to, to take gold off of you or, or, or a, a barge of coffee beans? <laughs> Not really. I'd keep my gold for myself, considering the way it's been going and expected to go. But I like what you're saying, Alex. It's really interesting. Uh, it's not the first time that I hear that people go like, huh, what an iffy situation and what is coming through the media even through those people that are experts and try to analyze and really give their take of the story. You think that narrative uh, was different and, uh, you know, there was no real physical exchange. Is this what you're trying to say of that oil on that day? No, no, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that there wasn't real physical exchange. I just, I'm just saying that I've seen no evidence of it having happened. That's all I'm saying. So maybe it did happen, but I, 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 I'm not aware of any real evidence. I'm only aware of the narrative. And narrative is so uh, completely off the charts of everything that I've come to consider normal and uh, um, part of the normal reality that I, I, have to be, uh, I have to be suspicious of it. Mm, no, it's it's uh, it's an interesting one, and you know, if I look at the expectations going forward, Alex, what oil could do? Of course, we had that big, um, you know, big crash in the oil market. Since then, it started to come back, and apparently, uh, according to my Credit Suisse uh, material, it should be doing really well. The WTI contract um, uh, until the you know the end of the year and going forward, it should be one of those outperforming assets. So circling back to um, what commodities can really hedge, try to hedge against inflationary pressure that might come? What would you say? How does oil stack up? How does gold stack up? What do you do uh, as a commodity trader looking at hedging strategy, hedging strategies in an uncertain economic future? Well, um, basically, uh, we have good empirical evidence for what constitutes a good inflation hedge. And uh, basically, it boils down to two asset classes. One is exposure to commodity prices through commodity uh, futures. And the other one is farmland. Um, I think that common sense indicates, suggests that probably a good... Uh, hedge is uh, is gold silver precious metals basically 
empirical evidence is a bit more, uh, how do you call it, um, less less certain about this because uh, what, what what tends to happen with gold is that it follows uh, but not leads inflation pressure. Uh, gold usually catches up with the rest of the commodity basket, but it's things like uh, copper, iron, energy, uh, agricultural commodities um, that uh, appear to be the best inflation hedge. So I think that for investors who can, uh, the most advisable inflation hedge uh, based on empirical uh, data would be uh, to have exposure to a diversified portfolio of commodity futures. Um, second one is farmland. That's one of the assets that cannot be printed out of thin air and will always be worth something. And uh, um, it's important to uh, note that what many, many people think that stocks are a good hedge against inflation. That's not the case. Um, stocks tend to underperform during uh, inflationary periods and in a lot of cases they, under, they underperform very, very badly. And when you look at uh, episodes of hyperinflation like you had in Zimbabwe, Venezuela and Germany in the 1920s, yeah. you see that uh, stock investors basically got wiped out. Alex, trends. Now, uh, in, in terms of also the trends showing us inflation one direction and then commodity or hedging protecting us against inflation with commodity, commodity futures, another thing. What can you tell me how trend and the trend statistics that you have developed uh, also with your company really help us in order to get some sort of direction and protection? Experts tend to uh, get forecasts wrong at least 50% of the time. So you cannot well, okay, let's go back to you've January. Got a, you've got a trend there too. I love that, Alex. So you've got a trend <laughs> forecast being wrong, showing a certain trend, i.e. 50% wrong calls. So better just forget about the other 50%. I like well, that. Well, you know, you, yeah, and the, and the problem with forecasting is that, you know, like it's, if, if it were always wrong, then you, can, you could bank on it. You could do the opposite and make money. But obviously that's not so easy either. So 50% of the time they're they're not wrong. And so... It isn't that easy. But if we go back to January 2019, you know, Reuters polled 1,000 oil market experts to forecast oil prices through 2023. Uh, the average forecast was between $65 and $70 per barrel. Not one of them has predicted that oil would drop by 70%, but that's what happened. Um, if you go to the Energy uh, Information Agency under U U.S. Department of Energy, uh, they uh, they collect uh, oil price forecasts from the leading oil market analysts and institutions like Deutsche Bank, Alex Brown, and so forth. And uh, if you if you follow their forecast, it's it's just so sad. They just uh, <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, all right. No, it's, it is sad because it really is us consumers, non-institutional investors, of course, depend on the big uh, names and uh, you know those research analysts being hired. So. I, I get your message. Let's go back to trends. How you, in your own system, how do you follow trends? What are the signals you're picking up in order to form a trend? What makes a trend? And right at the beginning of our conversation, Alex, you also mentioned human nature, psychology. And I wonder to what extent you can put metrics on human nature and psychology as well as an ingredient of trend setting. Well, it's a, that's a perfect question. 
Um, it's a complex issue because obviously you cannot uh, come up with a definition of trend that would uh, distinguish all trends from all non-trends. It's a fuzzy concept. So if you look at a price chart of anything, uh, you see that uh, some shapes, some um, price fluctuations, uh, trajectories are better examples of trends uh, than others. And so you have to make a judgment. Judgment is a complex thing, and it happens in the, in the human brain. So 20 years ago, when I started research, research into it, I, I decided that, okay, so if human judgments can come up with, the, with, the, um, with what we think is trend and what we think isn't trend, then th that must mean that our brains is doing some kind of a trigonometry that we should be able to uh, deconstruct and reverse engineer to write algorithms that would uh, perform the equivalent function uh, numerically. So that's what we did. So I, what I do is I, uh, if, if I look at any given market, I run, uh, let's call it tens, hundreds of thousands of iterations to try to come up with a trend definition uh, that over time uh, can capture value from large scale price events in a way that it, it makes money it makes more money than it loses when there's no trend. Alex, we have to wrap up our conversation. I think this was super insightful. And speaking of insights, I'm uh, asking my guests, what are the main lessons you learned in your profession over the last few years that you would pick out and whisper to whoever comes next into your professional seat as in, okay, listen, if I have learned anything in this business, if I have learned anything in my career, Watch out for this, that, and the other. What would that be? Oh, dear. Well, I think that one of the most important lessons that I have learned in my career is that uh, in order to uh, generate uh, investment gains over the long term, you have to be willing to take losses, meaning you implement a strategy today. It, a strategy might make sense long term, but you don't know what's going to happen next month or uh, over the next 12 months. And so you have to be uh, willing and able to sustain uh, losses over a certain period. That entails that you have to be very careful about your risk management, meaning don't get in over your head so that when you do sustain those losses, you can sleep with it. You know, you can, you can remain composed and calm and keep your strategy rather than getting scared of losses and then start chasing your tail because that uh, leads to unhappy endings. And empirically, you know, if, if you look at all the, what all the retail brokers that uh, in some jurisdictions, retail brokers are obliged to on their, on their homepage, put the proportion of their clients that lose money. And you find out the 76% about between 70 and 76% of them lose money. That's a very important lesson to take home. Don't trade. Don't, don't imagine that you can by quickly jumping in and out of positions, getting exposure to this and that, taking profits and jumping out, that you'll get ahead. The odds are stacked very strongly against you. So think it through, have a strategy, and give yourself the cushion to be able to sustain losses until uh, the conditions in the market redeem your strategy. Well, that's excellent. That is a really good takeaway. It is, uh, it is because it's technical, but it's also very psychological. Alex, thank you so much for joining me here on Mentor. It was my pleasure and a privilege. 
Uh, greetings to your listeners, and I follow Mentor TV. I think you're tackling extremely important subjects. Uh, I hope uh, I hope you'll get a lot more viewership because uh, what's coming our way uh, are going to be changes that are so big and so momentous that we need to uh, put our uh, our minds together, think it through, and see where it's going, and hopefully influence the process for the better. Thank you so much for your feedback, Alex. Thank you so much, uh, you know, for you, <laughs> for your super kind words and to you dear mentorate tv community i hope you really enjoyed this conversation i think there's a lot we can learn from alex here and uh yeah please keep your comments coming in keep following me keep the thumbs up if you Absolutely. like it but also of course Absolutely. subscribing <laughs> thank you so much and i see you Pleasure. soon in the next episode Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries, sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast, hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify.